21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. In today's episode, I have a, a very dear friend from many years past on the show. Um, Nicole and I met in university back in uh, Windsor, Ontario in probably 1994, Nicole? Yeah? That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, and then uh, Neela and I ended up moving to Japan, but we always came back to Windsor. Um, and when we did, Neela was always sure to go to Nicole's yoga classes because Nicole was one of her first mentors that inspired her to pursue yoga. So um, I'm just going to have Nicole Daniel introduce herself, and then you'll learn more about Nicole as the podcast goes on. So Nicole, what do you want to say about yourself? Well, uh, that I am uh, Nicole Daniel, but that I also uh, go by the nickname Coco. So all around the world, I've traveled and I'm known very much by Coco, and that goes back since I was a small child. Um, and uh, and that I have uh, an amazing life here in Canada. I every day just really uh, am in awe of where I'm traveling to, what place I'm going to teach, who I'm going to go. Uh, experience a nice time with it's just a, really a beautiful thing to be present to yeah and so you your passion obviously is is yoga and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on my podcast was that my podcast is is the the big theme is about people who take action and initiative in their lives to pursue excellence both personally and professionally and to me, there is no difference, and I've said this before, there is no difference between our personal selves and our professional selves. They're very much intertwined. And you're a great example of somebody that's really pursued your passion over the years. And like we said in, in the pre-show, um, I had told you, like, you know, people that pursue their passion for years and years and years, there's not that many people that are able to do that. So yoga is your passion. And I'm just going to give people some background here about um, how you started in yoga. And that was, um, if I'm correct, you got your uh, yoga certification in uh, Varanasi, uh, India? Varanasi. Varanasi, India in 1999. And then you did your holistic health care practitioner certification in 2000. And that led you into an interest in Thai massage, uh, and you got certified that in, uh, in that in 2003. Uh, but you've basically been been at this for over 16 years now. So, what is it? Uh, do you want to talk about um, kind of what drove you in those early stages to find your passion with yoga? So, what was it that inspired you to begin pursuing yoga? 
initially, lack of pain really caught me right away. My very first experience practicing physical yoga, practicing asana, uh, dates back to a few years prior to my going to India. Uh, and I, I laid there and was consciously aware of being able to lay on my back and didn't have any pain. And that just comes from having lived with chronic pain due to a uh, pretty significant scoliosis in my spine and a leg length discrepancy. So from an early age in my early teens, I was aware of sciatica. I was aware of a lot of pain, um, you know, had a slight little bit of a, a, a gait to my, to my walk, one shoulder a little bit slightly elevated, um, parents concerned, just uh, living that and, and, and managing. It wasn't, um, you know, I didn't have any surgeries or anything like that, but aware of pain and just really addicted to that lack of pain that the physical practice gave me instantly. I, I knew instantly that I would do this every day. So what, like who was, was it a class in Windsor that you went to or what? No, no. <laughs> it was a, I, <laughs> we're going to go here, are we? <laughs> yeah, I no, just, just, just it interesting. Was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was living in BC and uh, was madly in love with an Australian man who was vegetarian and a yogi and a snowboarder and a world traveler. And he blew my mind. And he was my first, he was the first person that showed me some yoga. And he and I, for, for about a year, and then a few years later, another year together, traveling another part of the world, we traveled and did yoga and, 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 and every single day practiced yoga together and had a really amazing time together. And, uh, from there, once I sort of got the travel bug planted in me, I took my passion for daily yoga to Southeast Asia. I ended up on a trip with a few women, um, from Quadra Island who were planning to go to Nepal and do some trekking. We went there and, you know, the women I was traveling with happened to be Reiki masters and oh, nice. Qigong masters. And so my whole life just, uh, was just, I was deeply entrenched in it. And then being in Nepal and then traveling down into India where I ended up in Varanasi, um, yoga then became suddenly very, it was just so tangible. It was just, it's just so right there. Ohm is just present everywhere. It's just woven into everything. And you, you, I just found myself, uh, at a whole new place with my practice and my, my teacher there taught me more about Kriya and chanting and a lot of other aspects of yoga than the, the physical stuff um, that, you know, as you know, once you start to feel more conditioned in your physical body and you're not so in pain and your system's all working well, it makes everything work so well. So I was just this nice conduit. I was an open channel, so ready to receive all the bounty that was just poof yeah. right there before me to the chagrin, of course, of my parents who wanted me to go to teacher's college and pursue that, yeah. <laughs> that way of life. 
So uh, <laughs> that that uh, because suddenly I was um, you know teaching people. I, my first real teaching yoga job was in Byron Bay, Australia. I taught there at a hostel a few times, and that was right after I left India, where I did my training. And I've just sort of continued on, and then some years later, yes, I was inspired. Um, to pursue Thai massage and I, I lived in Thailand. So I, I've spent quite a bit of time around the world and in Southeast Asia where that weaves in, you know, Vipassana meditations and all kind of beautiful times chanting with monks in the Himalayas. And I mean, it just has been an unbelievable ride. And now I find myself back in the city in which I was born bringing with me such nice things to share and I've I've been really pleased to see yoga and uh, so many more holistic and and natural things happening in in the city where I was born where I didn't really ex- expect to return to yeah and that's and 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 one of the things I have peeps here yeah and one of the things um I think having lived outside of Windsor since 1997, I left in 1997, when I, that's something I want to ask you later on about how you felt returning back to Windsor, but um, what you mentioned about your parents wanting, wanting you to go to teacher's college and, you know, you're, the way you describe your, your classes is that you give a very unique guidance to your students um, and that it's very differentiated, you know, and, and I think that ultimately there is no difference between what you do now and being a teacher in the classroom. You're an educator and you're an educator of yoga and mindfulness and all of those great things that come along with it. And as you say, and when you describe your classes that you give unique guidance to each student, it's about that differentiated instruction. And that's so important in the classroom and especially with what you do. So how would you describe the strategies that you use to differentiate with your students when you're teaching yoga? Like, obviously, you observe and you get to know them. But what are the keys to differentiating, do you think? Um, yeah, uh, great questions, Andy. You're really an interesting interviewer <laughs> um and and just you know to to maybe come full circle just uh you know i i imagine my parents are happy to know that now where i do teach yoga meditation mindfulness it's in the school system it's in the university it's in yeah. educational places so i guess in a way <laughs> i'm i'm where uh they wanted me to be but not so much in the same way but uh yeah no it's nice and i guess uh, you know obviously physically uh my own scoliosis has given me such an intimate knowledge of my own uh, oddities right so i'm very interested in people's little quirks I like looking at every little nook and cranny of their toes, their arches. Are they leaning back forward? I try to very much spend time with them to help them discover a new alignment. So definitely individual in that way. Um, I'm searching for that. Yes. And, you know, I have many group classes, but I also love one-on-one time. And, And that includes my work 
the body work I do, right? High massage, going in, really spending one-on-one time with someone where together we're we're discovering and 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 just that body is talking to me and, and, and we can, you know, lay out a good home practice. Um, that's what I feel my, my goal is to give my students is some inspiration for things for them to do at home. Because as you know, it's the daily practice, especially if you're dealing with something like a scoliosis or an injury or a condition where you have some kind of ongoing thing. You want to have an ongoing practice to be able to uh, live with that and and to stabilize it and and prevent things from getting worse. So that's my goal is that people are getting ideas of just things they can realistically do in their everyday life. And, and that's on and off the yoga mat. Uh, other individualistic things I do is, for example, if you're a, a golfer or a particular a gardener, I like to share with my students, I think about what they're doing with their everyday, that golf swing, that, you know, that weeding tool, that, that the repetitive patterns, maybe they work on the line, the repetitive patterns that they might be doing all day long. And I just, just try to give them examples of things that they need to you know, stretch out after a day like that or toning the other arm and hand and other side of the body as well. You know, maybe uh, if you're a gardener, you're, you're toning uh, your, your opposite hand to do some of those monotonous jobs like the raking, the weeding. Uh, I try to just think about what are they doing throughout their day off their yoga mat, um, just patterns that they're getting into and, and that we can try to change up where they're becoming, you know, a little, little bit more ambidextrous, not always relying on dominant muscle patterns, muscle groups, trying to help them with those things. So they, like I have, ha- uh, weave that awareness into everything you do. Yeah. How you're driving, how you're shoveling snow, how you're swimming, it's just every pattern. Because we get stuck in pattern. Creating more symmetry. For sure. For sure. And then as we know, that creates such a peaceful body. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I can see, you know, however long it is into it with working on someone six months in, I can see that so much changes such a shift happens there's a contentment and a just a a je ne sais quoi (laughs) i don't know yeah something you know what happens as the body gains that that health and and wellness it 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 lightens so many loads out of your physical burdens yeah and what you what you're describing uh when i hear, hear you describe that experience two things come to, to mind. Number one is great teaching is about building relationships first and foremost. And, and I don't care what you teach or what you do. Um, building relationships is, is key. And as teachers, oftentimes, especially in the school system, teachers get caught up in content and, and the importance of just driving content down their teachers th- or down their students' throats and just 
bombarding them with content rather than building those relationships and understanding truly what it is they need. So great teaching is about building relationships. And and I think that's what you describe is that differentiation and really watching their subtleties and really getting to know them. Then you can offer them exactly what they need. The other thing that comes to mind when you said um, you're talking about physical repetitive patterns, right? And, and so the physical movement, these repeating patterns that whatever, if it's golf or gardening or whatever it is they do, long distance running. But what about um, repetitive patterns of mindset? Uh, do you have a way to address like these, these faulty ways of thinking about um, how people think about themselves and their bodies? Do you have ways to address that, um, these repetitive patterns of mindset and, and self-talk? For sure. I, I, I try to weave into my classes some awareness of the practice of non-judgment and compassion and love and uh, being in the moment and, and not judging and, it, you know, riding the waves of the up and the down. I try to, to weave that through the practice so that, you know, those those seeds get planted we do start to you know just become a bit more conscious not only of our body but of how we do talk and chatter and and you know i i've been fortunate enough to have um really been present to some very interesting uh studies neurological studies i years ago was at a Mind Life Institute uh, gathering with this is the Dalai Lama's passion to weave that kind of neuroscientific awareness in with meditation and that that being present to that and and really learning and seeing the images of that changing brain and and seeing how science is now showing what thousands of years of meditators have have said is that we can change the the patterns of thinking the patterns of dialogue the you know that tendency to go off into those places and so yes we we learn to gain control you know we can we can control our breath we can control our body and the hardest part is the control of the mind right absolutely that's i i think that you know i i I see Shavasana as such a challenging pose when yeah. it's done truly correctly is to, you know, now that the body is still, now that the, the breath is there, okay, now what's, what's going on in there as you lay still? Yeah. Are you able to keep that still as well? So I, I love taking people on nice journeys during their Shavasana, and I teach a lot of meditation and mindfulness practices a, a range of body consciousness practices, mental counting, different strategies to, you know, bring your mind back to the breath. I, I share that with people and, and hope again that that's something that they're taking with them and doing at home because that's where it really sinks in, where that becomes a pattern, a new way of thinking, a new way of, and it's so peaceful, right? When you place yeah. that yeah. meditation cushion down and, Go to that place, even though it's so hard, but it becomes easier and it becomes natural and it becomes part of your life. And all that stuff 
goes away. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard of have you heard of the book The Talent Code? The Talent Code? No, I have not. So it's essentially in a nutshell, um this uh the author did years and years of research into what makes people extraordinary in whatever it is they do. And he was fascinated. He came across a study that showed that something like the the most top twenty uh, top twenty female uh, tennis players came from this small town in Russia. Then he he goes and he's like a small town. First of all, why do they all come from this small town? What's going on in this small town? And then he finds out that there's only one indoor court in this small town. So it's that he began to become very fascinated with what's going on in places like that to make people great at what they do. And oftentimes it comes down to this, this mindset and, and this way of training and this way of thinking. So then he went to the neuroscience and he started to look at when, when you begin to, when your life is dominated by certain thought patterns, that those thought patterns become so strong, those neuro pathways become so strong that the myelin sheath sur- like begins to coat the neuro pathway. And the more you begin to allow yourself to go down that path, you get more myelin sheath that builds up and builds up and builds up. And it's actually that myelin sheath that protects the neural pathway, which causes that signal to transmit at lightning speed, right? So it's that idea that we create these thought patterns. So what you're describing is um, sharing with students new ways of thinking that is not enough. They need to practice it hard and the same idea. Then they begin to build that myelin sheath that begins to get thicker and thicker, which transmits uh, transmits the signal at a rapid pace, which allows them to it be, to become habit right in their life. Yes, and I I do suggest the daily practice. But when you say practice it hard, I also recommend to students of any age to also allow for it to be natural, right? Like don't stress out about it, (laughs) Practice, Practice every day. Uh, Try try to do that every day to instill those patterns. But also I, I, I wouldn't want someone to be overwhelmed by a strain to force this into their brain. You know, it's a real changing patterns is very difficult and, you know, millimeter by millimeter, you know, onion yeah. layer by onion layer, myelin sheath by myelin sheath, uh, you know, take it down and, and reroute it uh, lovingly, compassionately, gently as we go. Uh, you know, that's at least my way. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that. <laughs> but. I think that's, that's the way to do it, you know, and it's, um, it's a marathon, not a sprint type. Um, mentality. But if you had to, because there's uh, listening to this podcast, it's going to be mostly educators. And there's a big push for mindfulness. Obviously, you know, the power of mindfulness, and that's really uh, creating a lot of momentum in the world of education. And, you know, Neela is doing a ton of mindfulness now at the school, uh, our school in China. She's worked really hard at it, and, and she's beginning to see progress with it. But if you were to uh, give advice to an educator who wants to integrate yoga and mindfulness in the classroom, and they have 
obviously they don't have much experience, so they have to learn themselves. But what would your recommendation be to those teachers who are still hesitant that want to begin at their own under their own terms and conditions? So you're saying you're saying for the teachers themselves within the practice classroom practicing yoga and mindfulness every day as opposed to a yoga teacher coming in you're telling me what would you have the teachers themselves do with the children yeah because I and I ask because I've been so fortunate for many years I know it's a big swell now to have yoga and mindfulness in the classrooms I'm thankful to say that for many years I've been going into I've been invited into grade school level and gym level classes uh, to uh, and high school level gym classes, um, art classes. I've had really you know, my, my own students who are maybe teachers and they invite me into their school. So that's been wonderful. And now I know, yes, it is a big swell going on. Um, I guess to, you know, to trust that the kids are getting stuff, even if they don't seem like they're getting it, you know, maybe if they seem uh, distracted or they're not sitting perfectly still for all that, or I, I trust that, you know, some of these kids are taking what I'm telling them and practicing at home. Maybe they are laying in bed at night and trying that breathing exercise or, you know, trying it in the privacy of their own room. I I do believe that they're getting it, even if in the classroom it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of progress, at least right away. Um, I don't know. I don't know just to, to specifically say. I'm sorry, I said just just chipping away at it, you know, and just introducing it at a micro level. You know, I think with Neela. That was one of her things is that she just began to introduce it at a micro level. And recently, so she began introducing it about four years ago. So when she first started introducing it, it was with like the grade two class. Well, that grade two class now, they're in grade five. And the, the students who have done it, most of the students have stayed at the school. It comes so naturally to them because they've done it for four years. But I think it's just taking that risk and being comfortable yourself with going to that place of silence. Because a lot of teachers can't handle silence. They want answers. They want action right away. You know, so I think that's one of the big things. You know, and you know what, Andy, that right hit the nail on the head. That is what I would tell those teachers. I would say you also must be a yoga and meditation practitioner. You must do these things yourself. Those, those teachers, maybe they also need to make sure they're practicing, um, within so that they're, they're modeling such behaviors and they're, they're aware of some of the subtle effects of the practices. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be really nice to make sure that they've at least got that practice a little bit under their belt. Uh, and, and, you know, physically, I think watching children's posture is a wonderful thing to do for kids these days. I think that if a teacher feels comfortable to hey, remind that kid to 
sit up tall, straight and strong, you know, boom, their spines go right back down again. Oh, okay, come on, bring it back up again. Uh, it'd be great. Those kids are so used to hunching over with yeah. video games at such a young age and their spines are, you know, I, I'm very particular uh, about children's spines. I believe they're so malleable and this goes up even into the teenage years. You know, I, I didn't get into yoga till my early twenties and I, I wish I had, had, you know, attained a little bit more of that awareness of how strong I could make parts of my spine that were maybe starting to slip and weaken. You know, I believe we can reorganize a lot of those patterns before our bones are completely formed. Yeah. Uh, so it would be great to have that just as physically as part of their, their awareness with the kids to really watch the, the, the lines to watch the patterns to watch so what the did physical they, stuff. So I'm going to interrupt you there to allow you to delve a little deeper into that. So a couple things. First of all, on on your website, which I'll share with people, your web website is Coco Yoga, or what is it? Yes, www.cocoyoga.ca. Okay. So you talk about the posture beads on there, and there's a picture of you with these posture beads. So. What do teachers need to look for in particular, and then what can they do to address whatever it is they they find with their students? So obviously not not giving posture beads out because they probably don't have them. But why don't you start with posture beads and then go into your? your... I, love, I love that you're giving another wonderful Windsor woman a little plug right now because those posture beads were created by Maria Latouf who's a friend of mine here in Windsor she's since moved to BC but that's a little Windsor plug (laughs) (laughs) local creator here they were designed to help you sustain their beautiful beautiful jewelry that are heavy and weighted and go down your back so that as you're moving about in your everyday things, I particularly like to wear them when I'm just cleaning house, uh, just to keep you aware of, you know, if those beads are swinging around a whole lot, or if you're rounding your back as you bend down, they'll swing around over your shoulder. They kind of remind you to make those proper movements with your knees and your back, your hips. So they're they're a super cool tool for yeah. sure. Yeah. What was the second part? The second of your question, question was what what are you what what is your advice to teachers uh, when they're looking for posture? What are they looking for? A and B. What can they do to address whatever inefficiencies they find in in their observations of students' postures? So what do they need to look for first? I guess, but rounded, caved-in chest, uh, and 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 you know the rounded back, the curled-in shoulders that you know we often associate with you know sitting on a computer or texting or playing video games. It's also a uh, protective pose. It's almost a I'm going to go into myself. It can it can emotionally and neurologically send your 
your nerves and your brain the message that like I'm depleted, I'm inward, I, you're, you're caving down into your abdominal organs, you're limiting your lung capacity and just lifting that up and changing your your physical pattern if those children have more open lung space not only are they you know their chest is up there's that certain just okay i'm up now i'm facing the world i'm i'm my eyes are making contact with what's in front of me i my ears are perked up my heart is open my lungs are more open you, you can see a a whole different energy in a person there you just sat up tall straight and <laughs> yeah, strong you, you got me doing it now <laughs> change your it can change your mood to you don't realize how how compressed and compacted your, your your organs and everything get and how shallow your breath can become when you're rounded as opposed to as we know tall straight spine big open chest space for the diaphragm and then your organs are strong and functioning proper properly so that you don't have as many bowel issues i mean it just supports everything yeah. emotionally, psychologically, physically, to have that core strength, to have the heart opened, to take the big deep breaths. So, I mean, if they do anything, maybe they just once in a while ask their kids to sit up in their desks tall, straight and strong and take a few mindful breaths. You know, that's a great way to just begin. Yeah. Hey guys, we're trying to sit up tall and we're going to take five deep breaths. And, and you know, that's a, uh, that's a lot, lot extra for, for a teacher to take on to fix all of her kids' spines. But <laughs> but that would be helpful, um, you know, to, to just be aware of that. And I don't know, maybe if there is a child that seems to have a certain shoulder. I mean, I don't know how that works. Uh, you know, just quickly going back to something we mentioned about, you know, uh, education. It's, it is a little bit sad how these days teachers are really not allowed to make contact to yeah. show love and feelings it's it's too bad that there's that that there's that unfortunate disconnect a little bit but uh you know i guess teachers can observe i what i was going to say is i don't know what they're allowed to do but maybe you know if you do see a child that has some struggles maybe in gym class maybe a gait to their walk, a shoulder stiffness. Maybe that's something they can consult the parents with. I don't know. Yeah. You know, the, what you're allowed to do. I don't know the rules. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, those are things I would observe. And just to be aware that those kids' spines are, are growing and we want them to grow in such a strong way to support their, their skeletal muscular system and all the organs and everything. You know, it's uh, yeah. those kids are with teachers six seven hours a day you know so it'd be really neat if teachers were a little bit on it i'd love to know that that they were on it in those yeah. classrooms okay sit up because i come in i go in and i teach some classes and I, I just can't even believe the kids they wuss out you know i have them up for a few breaths and they're like oh because it's hard work <laughs> it's really it's, yeah it's we hard. have a lot of laughs yeah, but I tease, you know. Yeah, it's hard work though when they're not used to that, and they have to hold their posture nice and tall, and uh, they're just not used to it. Like you said, they're hunched over, they're caved in from the shoulders. They, you know, just that standing tall and imagining a hook on their head and fish line pulling their skeletal, uh, skeletal system st straight up. You know, just that, just that vision 
holding in that position can get tiring for kids that aren't used to that. It can, but they had uh, hindsight down the road when they're adults and they look back and they think about, oh, how much easier life would have been if they would have had that nice posture because they would have avoided this injury and this back pain and this whining about this pain. You know, it really does because, you know, when you teach a lot of adults and you see the years of unwinding that are required from such pain set in. The work is so hard to do as an adult and as a kid, it can be just, you know, they're rubber. Yeah. They're so malleable. Yeah. So. Um, do you know, yeah. have you heard of uh, Amy Cuddy? No. So Amy Cuddy, she did a TED talk as well. There was, you know, went viral, but she talks about doing two things. She talks about the Superman pose. So she talks about hands on the hips, like you're Superwoman or Superman just what you're describing, tall posture, and just that mere act, as you described, of, of straightening up. You open yourself up to the world. Neurochemical changes happen. You become the signal to your brain is, even though you might not feel it, is I'm more confident now. And and then yes. the other one she does is the power pose. So you can see me doing this right now, which is the hands just above your head. Like, what what is that, Tadasana? Right. Yeah. So just that pose itself, you know, is opening yourself up and and remaining tall. So um, that's something Neela does a lot with her students um, in Nanjing. So just that idea that it's not just holding the posture, but it's also the neurochemical changes that come with it that are critical. So I've got another question question for you about kind of how um, yoga and mindfulness kind of transformed you. So if you could sum up how it kind of has changed you or is continuing to change you, what would you say? I would say that the contentment that comes with being present is, is blitz, right? To just not live in the fantasy of, What's coming? What's it going to look like? What's what's going to happen down the road or grasping, grasping at the past? It could have been like this and I should have done this. And what if it went like this? I used to spend a great amount of time in that world. And to shut that off and open up your, your, right, your true essence, your creative powers, you know, using that energy instead of so much wondering and what if in the, in the, in the, in that land, you, in this present world, have so much more energy to really be present with everything you do. So there's a whole new essence that you're, you're able to tap into about yourself. Yeah. You know, that magic, yeah, yeah. That, that full potential awakening, uh, it just, you can, you can just experience life in such a, a different way that I can't describe it any other way than, than bliss. Yeah. We were talking pre-show, so I'm going to have you listen to this audio clip, okay? Because this is, fits in nicely with what we're talking about, but it's the idea of uh, gratitude, 
and the power of gratitude. And uh, just to give the the listeners a little bit of backstory, um, the audio clip that I'm going to play for you is one minute long, and it's from TED Radio Hour podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. The host is Guy Raz. Uh, he's on Twitter um, at uh, Guy Raz G U Y R A Z. Um, he has given me permission to use audio clips from his podcast and my podcast, so that's why I'm uh, putting it in here. But it's uh, it's an audio clip from a Benedictine monk named David Steindl Rast, and he did a TED Talk which is entitled, Do You Want to Be Happy? Be Grateful. So in this TED Talk, he shares the idea that a lot of people think that happy people are are uh, give gratitude, but he's here to remind people that no, there are people that have everything in the world. They don't need anything else, but they're the most miserable, unhappy people on earth. So it's not those things that matter. It's the people that are very grateful for what they have that actually live a very happy life. And a lot of this is starting to be rooted in research. So I'm going to have you listen to this um, audio clip, and then I'm going to ask you uh, what resonates with you. So just describe in your own practice over six, you know, 16, 17 years, however long you've been doing this now, what resonates with you the most in regards to David Steindl Rast's uh, audio clip. So I'm going to play it now. And how can we live gratefully? by becoming aware that every moment is a given moment, as we say. It's a gift. You have no way of assuring that there will be another moment given to you. And yet, that's the most valuable thing that can ever be given to us. We say, opportunity knocks only once. Well, think again. Every moment is a new gift, over and over again. And if you miss the opportunity of this moment, another moment is given to us, and another moment. We can avail ourselves of this opportunity, or we can miss it. And if we avail ourselves of the opportunity, it is the key to happiness. So pretty, pretty powerful quotes. So I, I encourage people to look up his TED Talk. If you get a chance, I'll put it in my show notes. But Nicole, Coco, what uh, resonates with you the most about that clip? I I guess two things came to mind. One is that he's correct. When we miss, when we're so occupied with what I was talking about earlier, when we're so occupied about, you know, what's coming, how's it going to look, what's it going to be, or how it was, we're distracted from that wondrous potential that's there in the moment for us. So, you know, that that is just so, uh, such a good thing to practice, to to be in the moment, to to really see what is right there for you, rather than wondering what's down the road for you, because I guarantee if you keep practicing that, when you do get to that point down the road, you're going to miss it then too, because you're still distracted, yeah. right? You got to, got to kind of, right? But uh, I, I then just regarding my own gratitude, um, I've 
shared with students many times my own gratitude for my scoliosis and how they can find things in their own quirky, weird bodies and lives, things that have happened. You know, it sounds a little bit maybe uh, cliche, but, you know, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger. The the scoliosis I have unplanned by me, I had no idea that that would one day lead me into such a phenomenal career. I, I didn't see that coming. So what, you know, I might have for some years as a teenager considered a great curse has ended up being such a gift. Um, not only did it get me into yoga and teaching yoga, but I feel that it, it helps me to really truly understand a people's pain and, and, and our, our body's ability to, to change and, and get stronger and, and able to, you know, support these incredible body minds so that, uh, we can really truly experience our, our full potential and our, our whole body and mind. It's, yeah. And that's, he's correct. Yeah. And you just gotta go ahead. You know, just, you just got, got to give it a try. (laughs) Just, just, Just quiet down, soak it up and see what inspire, like every answer, every moment is right there. That the inspiration is there. The, the key is right there. You just have to quiet down and see that it's just given to you. We really do not have to live with what ifs, what might be's. It's just right there for you if you're there to receive it. And to be open to it. And when you're describing your own um, condition of scoliosis and growing up with that and considering it a curse when you were younger, but then now realizing that if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. So it's a blessing in disguise. And there is another uh, TED Talk. uh, There is a a podcast I listened to, the Tim Ferriss Podcast. Have you ever heard of the four-hour work week? No. Okay, so Tim Ferriss um, wrote this book called The Four-Hour Work Week, which is a very deep book. It's not just about trying to work as little as possible, but it's a very deep book. And and he started a podcast, which is... uh, the number one podcast in the world. I think he got 50 million downloads last year. But he recently had on, just a couple weeks ago, he had somebody on his um, podcast named B.J. Miller. And B.J. Miller, extraordinary story, because he was like a normal kid growing up. He went to university, and he was out partying with friends, went to like Coney Island type place to get hot dogs. And and there is a streetcar called the Dinky. And I think it's in Philadelphia, no, uh, maybe Philadelphia. I'm just checking my notes. But um, so the, they're outside, they're having their their Coney Island hot dogs or whatever it was that they're eating. And he sees the dinky part there. And he's amazing because he says, you know, my, my life was almost ended by the dinky. So he ends up climbing up this streetcar and going on top, and and he was wearing a metal watch, and he got electrocuted because he was too close to the power source. He's electrocuted, practically dead, ends up having three limbs amputated, and somehow through it all, continues on, and ends up becoming a PhD, 
um, in kind of like a mindfulness and not yoga, but more mindfulness and Zen, Zen thinking. And then he opened up a palliative care unit in uh, San Francisco called Zen Hospice. And he says in this podcast that, you know, his blessing in life was climbing on the dinky and getting electrocuted and losing his limbs and finding his true purpose in life. So now what he does is he brings honor and dignity and a graceful end to his patients' lives. Beautiful story, right? So he has devoted his life to making this whole process of death so much more meaningful for everybody involved, not just the immediate family, but the people taking care of the person, the dying person, everybody involved. And they have these rituals when they send off the, the, the bodies. And so through his own experience of almost dying and living with only one limb and doing the work he does, he has become incredibly empathetic and compassionate. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating story. Um, but in line with what you're saying in regards to considering it a blessing at, or a curse at first, but then realizing that it was one of your true blessings that led you down the path that you're on. Yes. 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 No, that, what you were just saying reminded me of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, right? And I remember reading that and just really having a whole new way of thinking about death and how to handle death and how to support someone through death. Such a beautiful, such a beautiful twist. Almost some people might almost consider it morbid, right? Yeah. To, to have this idea of celebration and and rejoicing and and um, and that detachment and letting go and all those you know the transience and you know all those Buddhist teachings that uh, can can sound really scary and almost oh that's like how could you possibly be that how could you possibly take death that, that easily? Right. But it is just such a natural thing. Um, it, it, you know, how did we get going? Off a little bit, but no, that, that, but the idea of gratefulness, gratefulness, yes. Being and grateful for our waves, gifts. just waves of amazing life. And yeah. just, Soak it up. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to put you, so we've got a few more minutes here. So I'm going to put you in the hot seat now. Okay. Oh. And I know you can handle it. So <laughs> okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to share a few resources and sources of inspiration. So anybody listening, maybe they can, they can do a little search and, and find out what it is you're talking about or whatever. But if you had to recommend uh, one, two, or three books, what would be your top recommendations? Oh, right on. Well, we just talked about that Tibetan book of the dead. That'd be a good one. Okay. Oh, the places you go by Dr. Seuss is always a good one. Dr. Seuss is always the best, right? Oh, the places you go. Um, oh boy. Yeah. The, I, I, I always love reading bits of the prophet by Khalil Gibran. Yeah. Such beautiful, uh, poetic ways to, 
you know, remind ourselves of those basic lessons of living in the moment and loving without attachment and all that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So those, those yeah. three, I had a friend recently on my podcast recommend the alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Did you ever read that? I did. Yeah. Yes. I read it. Years ago. Yeah, me, me too. But um, okay. So what about other sources of inspiration? So if you had to define a couple well, of sources of inspiration, what, what do you think they would be? I think the very first thing that comes to my mind that I want everybody to know about to, to experience is uh, um, the, the music of, of Sheva and Gilran Shama. Uh, these are uh, musicians in Israel that I've been honored to have you know, traveled through Thailand and, and India with um, at different Sufi gatherings and, and celebrations, even including here at the Montreal Jazz Festival. Um, in, inspiring in that these guys are, are singing in, in Hebrew and Arabic just about the, the love and the brotherhood and the truth that is going on there in their in their land where you know they are all brothers and sisters and cousins and they're all from the same root as we all are and they celebrate peace this group celebrates peace through joyous ecstatic dance and music and uh, they're a real phenomenon in the Middle East you know the Dalai Lama himself Self invited Sheva to a world peace gathering. Oh, wow. uh, they are the ambassadors of peace from Israel. Uh, so, I mean, I'm always happy to turn people on to the music of Sheva and Gilran Shama. Just, um, you know, that let's hit it just right on the head. We're all one and we're all just brothers, and let's stop. Let's stop realizing that through bloodshed and let's just cut to the chase and realize we're all just, you know, on this spinning rocket ship together and let's yeah. cut the nonsense. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mu music always inspires me. I I'm very inspired by music and yeah. joy I will, joyous dance. Yeah. I will, um, uh, when we're done here, I'm going to write that down their music so that I can put it in the show notes and refer people to it. So do, can people find them online? Probably obviously pretty easily. Yes. Yeah. YouTube. Sheva. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And Gil Shama. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We'll definitely, I, definitely recommend that for sure. Um, and to close off today's show with you, Coco, Nicole, Daniel, or do I just call you Coco, Daniel? <laughs> either one I, I respond to all of this <laughs> okay um your last piece of advice for the listeners in the audience take your time why <laughs> are you kidding me you want me to give like one thing one just one <laughs> after all that yeah just one. Maybe it's a repeat of something. That's my advice. Listen to Andy's podcast. <laughs> Thank you for the plug. And another <laughs> Windsor plug. <laughs> so, hey, yeah, so Nicole, people can find you at um, cocoyoga.ca. Yes. And you have a, um, do you have an Instagram or a 
LinkedIn as well? I'm on LinkedIn, yes, and I'm I have a public figure page on Facebook and I'm really supposed to become a Twitterer and an Instagrammer. I know that. I know that's where things are going, but I have not gotten on all that yet. So I have a public Facebook page, Coco Nicole Daniel. I try to keep people up to date on not only my own classes and workshops, but other just great things going on in, in not only in Windsor and Essex County, but like I've plugged Sheva performances going on and, you know, around the world or different really neat things, shamanic gatherings going on in France. I like to just sort of throw out onto that thing, all kinds of cool stuff going on. Well, I, I will recommend uh, Nicole, I'll recommend that, um, you know, there'll be quite a few, um, physical education teachers and, uh, schools that listen to this, just south of the border, um, you know, through the states. So uh, they've got lots, lots of um, national annual conferences. So I would recommend any teachers to uh, get in touch with you and bring you into one of those conferences to kind of teach how you can integrate yoga into physical education and, and coaching. Because I know you do a lot of that at the University of Windsor as well with sports programs and, and stuff. So um, we'll finish off there, but stay on the line. I'm just going to stop the recording. So, um, Nicole, just say bye to everybody. Bye everybody. And thank you so much, Andy. No problem. And, uh, I hope you, everybody listening, I hope you come back and listen to future episodes. So thanks for listening. And, uh, I hope you tune in next time. Thanks for listening to the run your life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.